The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. Well, I've untied uh, quite a number of knots in my life. Uh, most of them have to do with like hoses or extension cords, and, and uh, some of them might take a little bit longer depending on how long it is. For example, in my garage hanging up right now, there is an extension cord that's 100 feet long, and it doesn't matter how diligently I wrap it up uh, the way it's supposed to be wrapped. When I try to unwrap it, it always sort of gets knotted up somehow. So I have to spend an extra amount of time undoing it, especially when it comes to uh, to hoses. When it's that long, you just have to make sure that there are no knots and tangles or you're going to have problems. Uh, some of the knots that I have uh, untangled take a little bit longer because they're so tight. Um, there have been some knots that my kids have brought to me that I, I have been unable to untie uh, with my hands. My, my, my fingers are too fat. My, my nails aren't long enough in order to, to get at these. And so we have this trusty little, uh, this little uh, clamp thing that we got from the ER one time that they were just going to throw out when uh, uh, they were done uh, probably stitching one of us up. And so we now have this really cool clamp that does, that does the job. I see Joe smiling over there because you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And uh, they're perfect for loosening up those really tight knots. And there are some kinds that, uh, despite my best efforts, I'm totally unable to, uh, to loosen up. I, I have this pair of shoes uh, that I use only for our treadmill, which means I only wear them like once a year. But I still have these, these shoes, and, but there's one lace that somehow got, got pretzeled up, and, and the, the knot is so tight that I can't get it out. And so every time I try to, to tie the, the shoe, the knot kind of gets in the way a little bit. But after a little finagling, I'm able to do it and, and, and uh, uh, do what you're supposed to do on a, a treadmill, um, which I guess is run. Um, but... Um, it, the, the, the knot doesn't impede the shoe's ability to do what the shoe should do, but certainly every time I use it, every time I look at those pair, that pair of shoes, and every time I think about them, I, I don't think about the style or the comfort. I think about that knot that's in the string that I can't get out. And my guess is that there's a lot of us in this room right now that have had a lot of uh, uh, knots in your lives. And, and I'm not talking about ropes or hoses or extension cords or, or, or drawstrings or shoestrings. I'm talking about the kind of knots that we tie, either intentionally or unintentionally, in our lives that cause life to be more difficult. There are some knots uh, of sin and, and mistakes in our lives that we commit, and some of them we can untie with maybe little or no effort, and uh, we just make simple adjustments, and we just keep on keeping on. There are some knots that might take us a little bit more time uh, and effort. Maybe there are some apologies that need to be made. Maybe there's some, uh, some uh, restitution that needs to be offered up. Maybe there's some forgiveness that needs to be extended. And uh, maybe behaviors and attitudes need to be adjusted a bit. But what about those kind of knots that you're not able to untie? Those knots in life that happen that have fundamentally changed the course of your life. Those sins and mistakes that you can't take back, they, they can't be erased, they're, they're part of who you are now. 
was that thing that you said that was so hurtful, that crime that you committed that uh, uh, will always be on your record, that, that, that moment of pleasure that has resulted in a lifetime of pain and regret? Or what about those kinds of knots that, that even with the best tools, I mean, you're, you can't untie them. They're there with you forever. That is the kind of place the people of God find themselves in in our text today. They had enjoyed the safety and protection of God throughout their history. And recently they have decided to reject his rule and his reign over their, their lives and instead have demanded a human king be their leader over them in order to be like every other nation that is surrounding them. But they weren't able to be like other nations. They were the people of God. They were to be set apart. They were to be faithful to God as he is faithful to them. And today they're confronted with their sin, but they're also confronted with the good news that even though they have forever to live with the consequences of their sin, God has not and will not abandon them. Today you may be confronted with some of the, well, some of your past. And uh, this text not only confronts us, but it provides us the good news of the gospel. That in spite of who we are, what we've done, God is still faithful. I hear myself echoing. I'm preaching to myself back up here. Um, God still welcomes us home through a king whose name is Jesus. So there are three things that we, that we ought to look at. And the first one is exactly the same point that we looked at last week. We can see recurring themes because they're so important. The first one is, is that we need to recall God's faithfulness. We must, must remember the Lord. There are a lot of uh, locations that evoke cultural memories. Uh, those places that uh, were important places in history, and when you go there, there's, uh, there's just this really neat feeling that just being there, whether you were involved in it or not, brings up nostalgia. Um, you know, if I showed you like this picture of the Alamo, most likely, even if you don't know the history of what happened at the Alamo or forgot, you probably have one phrase that comes to mind. What is it? Remember the Alamo, right? Yeah, I've never been there, so I don't remember it all that well, but I certainly remember it from history class. I have, however, been in Ford's Theater, and that is the place where Abraham Lincoln was shot. And there is something about being in that room that, that connects you to those past events, even more so being across the street in the very room in which Abraham Lincoln died. Now, I have never been to Philadelphia, but I can imagine that there is this sense of weightiness and awesomeness of being in Independence Hall, the place where they sign the Declaration of Independence. It's these places that we go to that may have been hundreds of years before us, perhaps even thousands, depending on where you're at, that somehow sort of transports you out of your current situation. And there is this feeling of being in something bigger than yourself that you were being placed into the big picture of history. And the Israelites here were at such a place. They, they uh, just crowned King Saul. He had just won a military victory, his first military victory as king against Nahash the Ammonite. And Samuel, who was their, their spiritual leader, had been uh, leading Israel since he was uh, a teenager. 
uh, he brought them to Gilgal to remember that it was not really Saul that saved them or delivered them, but it was actually the Lord. It was that Gilgal where the Israelites could, could look at these 12 large stones that were placed out there by Joshua two to 400 years prior to remind the generations of God's faithfulness to them, that they had not only been delivered from Egypt, but that they had been delivered from the wilderness for 40 years and brought to the promised land. It is meant to help them to remember that it is the Lord who is faithful, that it is him who leads them, and that it is him who protects them. It's him who provides for them victory and salvation. And so the end of chapter 11, we're sort of left on a really good note. Things are happening. This is the way that it's supposed to be. But as soon as you turn the page into chapter 12, the tone changes too. So with the backdrop of these stones behind Samuel, Samuel knows that the only way forward for the people of God is to return to the Lord in repentance and trust in him alone. And he does this by reminding them that demanding a king was a sin. He reminds them first of the judges' uh, system and how uh, God was actually their king and God saved them time and time again and the system worked pretty well. He used himself as an example. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, Then Samuel said to all Israel, I have carefully listened to everything that you said to me and placed a king over you. Now you can see that the king is leading you. As for me, I'm old and gray and my sons are here with you. I've led you from my youth until now. Here I am. Bring charges against me before the Lord. And his anointed. Whose ox or donkey have I taken? Who have I wronged or mistreated? Who gave me a bribe to overlook something? I will return it to you. Now, if you're a careful reader or rememberer of the events that have happened prior uh, to this, you would see that Samuel is contrasting his leadership uh, with what is to come in the kingship. Back in chapter 8, when they demanded a king and, and uh, Samuel was trying to talk them out of it, he warned them that the king that they are going to get is going to be nothing but a thief. He is going to take from you. And he's not going to leave it at that. He is going to take and take and take. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to take your farms. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your sons, all to be his servant. And so Samuel is saying, hey, look, You've got a king now. What did I say what, what, what would happen? Will happen. Did I take any of your livestock? Did I take any of your daughters or sons to be slaves or servants of me? In verse 4, they respond, No, 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 no. You haven't wronged us. You haven't mistreated us. You haven't taken anything from anyone. And so now uh, Samuel puts them somewhat on a trial. And... and uh, he first brings up witness number one when it says, he said to them, the Lord is a witness against you and his anointed is a witness today that you, that you haven't found anything in my hand. He is a witness, they said. Witness number two now is their history. Verse seven, then Samuel said to the people, the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt as a witness. 
Now present yourselves so that I may confront you before the Lord about all the righteous acts that he has done for you and your ancestors. Verse 8. Uh, when Jacob went to Egypt, your ancestors cried out to the Lord, and he sent them Moses and Aaron, who led your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he handed them over to Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, to the Philistines and to the king of Moab. These enemies fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord, have mercy, we have sinned, for we have abandoned the Lord and worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now rescue us from the power of our enemies, and we will serve you. So the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. He points to himself. He rescued you from the power of the enemies around you, and you lived securely. Now, any defense lawyer on the part of Israel would know that they're doomed. They're going to lose this case. Throughout their history, in good times or bad, God had been mightily working in their midst. He had shown his strong arm when they were oppressed or when they were in rebellion and returned to the Lord and called out for him. What did he do? He rescued them every single time. He has always been faithful. He has always been good. But now in verse 12, he lays the indictment. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, No, we must have a king reign over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. So it's a continuing theme that we've been looking at for a number of weeks now, that God is faithful. God is faithful to his people. But for whatever reason, God's faithfulness uh, doesn't even bear space in our brains. Or we choose to just forget about it, and God is just an afterthought. And this is clear proof here that the issue is not with our psyche or our brains. The issue is with the heart. There's nothing wrong with our intellect. The problem is in our heart. We know God is faithful. It's a matter of our heart believing it. So what do we need to do? We need to continually remind ourselves daily, hourly, by the minute if we need to of the faithfulness of God in our lives. And we need to think about it because we need to rewire our hearts that so easily uh, get untangled and search for something else. Our minds must train our hearts to remember the Lord so that we're not putting other kings on the throne of our lives. We need to remember God's faithfulness in the good times in life so that when the difficult times come up, we won't forget about him. A lot of this comes down to training, training our minds, training our spirits, training our, our, uh, our reactions to things. Recall his faithfulness. And then second, admit 
your sin. Repent of your sin. And move forward in faith. Samuel just handed down this massive indictment that uh, in spite of the centuries of the proof of God's faithfulness, verse 12 essentially tells us that when Nahash came along, they said, forget God as our king. I mean, good grief, he can't do anything. We need a real king. We need a human king to take on this. It is a high level of hubris to think that their situation is different than the, all the previous generations that come before him. And as a pastor, I have heard it more times than I even want to think about that uh, there might be someone who is seemingly a faithful believer for years and they fall into some sort of sinful pattern or, or whatever it is, and when confronted with it, they say something like, yeah, pastor, I know what the Bible says about fill in the blank. But my situation's different. I don't need to follow X, Y, Z from the, the scriptures here. They'll say something like, Pastor, I know the Bible says adultery is wrong, but you don't know what it's like living with that person. I've fallen out of love with them. I like someone else now. Pastor, I know what the Bible says about divorce outside of adultery and desertion and abuse, but yeah. You know, I just, this just isn't working for me anymore. My situation is different. Pastor, I know that God wants me to be happy, so this doesn't apply to me. Pastor, I know that playing the lottery or going to the casino uh, might not uh, be a godly way of stewarding my finances, but, you know, if I win, I, of all people, will use it for good. It's these sorts of arrogant arguments that are doing nothing but covering up a heart that says, I'm different, I'm special, and the rules don't apply to me, even God's rules. And I hate to break it to you, but you're not special. You're not different. And the rules apply to you, regardless of how you spin your situation. Sin is sin, and Romans chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that God shows no partiality. There's no favoritism in him. You may be here today, and you need to come to grips with the reality of your sin. You may need to admit what, it is going on, what is going on, how it is tearing apart your family, your employment, and even your own soul. What you are dealing with, however, is not irredeemable, and the ramifications might stick with you for a long time, if not the rest of your life. But there is hope, just as there was hope for Israel in verse 13. Samuel says, now here is the king that you've chosen, the one you've requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. So Samuel recognizes that what's done is done. There's no take backs here. You can't push rewind and make it a choose your own adventure book. What's behind you is behind you. There's no turning back. They can't ask Samuel now to take the kingdom away dethrone this man, and let's go back to what we were. This is their future now. But it's not too late to return to the Lord. Look at verse 14. If you fear the Lord and worship him and obey him, 
And if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. There's a converse warning here now in verse 15. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. You see, we... Um, Sin is not something that we can take lightly. We can't recognize it and simply say, well, you know, what's done is done, so, you know, just whatever, let's move on. Restoration and recovery from sin takes not only admission, but it takes repentance. That means turning from your sin, renouncing it as evil for what it is. And turning, from, uh, turning toward God. And it doesn't end there. Repentance also means walkly, walking humbly on the road of recovery for whatever that means. As long and as painful as it might be. It means admitting not only how it has broken a relationship vertically, but also maybe those horizontal relationships that we have hurt. It means maybe taking time to earn that trust back again. It means uh, possibly counseling. It might mean restitution. It might mean loss. It means being absolutely diligent and leaning on God to make sure that this does not repeat. It means fearing God. And that fear term that Samuel uses in verse 14 is a tricky one. It could mean be in awe or reverence. That's certainly the Bible uses it that way. But there's also a holy terror that goes with it too. And I think that's what Samuel was warning of them here. Because their sin and disposition to return to it, he warns them of the seriousness of it. In verse 16, Therefore, present yourselves and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Isn't this the wheat harvest? I'll call on the Lord and he will send thunder and rain so that you will recognize what an immense evil you have committed in the Lord's sight by requesting a king for yourselves. Samuel called on the Lord and on that day the Lord sent thunder, or rain, thunder and rain. Now I'm no farmer. But I know enough about farming that you don't want a soggy harvest. You want to be able to go out there when it's dry. I've lived in rural communities where a late fall rain will actually hurt quite a bit. And so it is the, the harvest season right now for, for Israel, which is actually in our spring. But uh, for them, that's when the harvest time is. And this thunderstorm shows up. And it's meant to remind people that, yes, God is faithful, but he's also just. And he is righteous, and he does punish sin. Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 26, puts it this way. For if we, go to, if we deliberately go on sinning, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregards the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think the one who 
uh, one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who he has insulted, uh, the spirit of grace. For we know that the one has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because of this warning now in chapter 12, verse 18, Samuel says, uh, well, the, 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 the text says, as a result, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And so now the more important question for us is, what do you do when you have something on your record that may be atoned for by Jesus, but it is still going to affect your life. Now there, uh, here we, um, we're going to live with the effects of it. In verse 19, they say, they plead with Samuel. They say, pray to the Lord your God so that we won't die. For we have added to all the sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. So they've admitted that they're seemingly repentant. They, they, they see this as, as wrong, but they can't turn back now. And, and they're terrified that the God is going to wipe them out. Now here's where we live at an advantage because we, are, we live on the other side of the New Testament in which when we have been convicted of our sin, we don't need to go to a priest like Samuel. We don't need to go to a confessional where we kneel but between a, 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 some sort of barrier. We don't need to do acts of penance. We don't have the terror of death because there has been one that has gone before us taking that punishment that we deserve upon himself and defeated its power in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Jesus has provided Forgiveness. He's provided uh, pardon and new life. In his ascension up into heaven, he is right now interceding for us. As John tells us in 1 John, when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, there's that word, and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. You know, our sin and our costly mistakes can feel like a death sentence. But friends, God is bigger than our sins. God is a God who turns our mourning into dancing, Scripture tells us who uh, takes our sackcloth of ashes and, and has us put on robes of joy and gladness. He is in the business of taking our sins and taking our mistakes and transforming them into his purposes that he can be glorified. 
Think about how many times in the Bible you see uh, the heinous sins of people being used by God for good. Don't think that your sin and mistakes are not able to be used by God for something great. You can live a life of joy when you admit, repent, turn to Christ, and move forward in faith. And that leads us right to our last point, which is return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. We need to recall God's goodness, admit these things, move forward. Now verse 20, Samuel again tells us how we, even if we can't undo that knot, even if we have that really cool clamp from the doctor, we can still thrive. Look what Samuel says in verse 20. Don't be afraid. Even though you've committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord your God with all of your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. And so as we look at this here, uh, he has just told us to, to fear the Lord, and now he tells us not to be afraid. It seems like a contradiction here, but if we consider the fact uh, that um, there are things that are legitimate to be afraid of, there's no contradiction here. We ought to fear the consequences of our sin. It's worthy to fear being the object of God's wrath. But when we have a God who is faithful to his people and who has taken away their sin through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, we have no reason to be scared. Rather, we can live in freedom from judgment. We can live in freedom that now we have the ability where we didn't before to say no to those things that gripped us and captivated our hearts, that commanded our worship other than God. It's interesting here that as we're discussing God's faithfulness, notice God's motivation for his faithfulness. You know, we tend to believe that God's motivation for everything that he does uh, is chiefly because of our worth, because of how much we mean to God. And that's part of it, but it's penultimate at best. Look at verse 22. The Lord will not abandon his people, again, he's faithful, because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his own people. Did you get that? God is faithful to his people because he has determined to see himself glorified. He rescues his people because he deeply cares about the fame of his name. He deeply cares how he is seen throughout the world. And he is certainly glorified when he helps those of us who are helpless and needy and find and receive everything that we need in him alone. He is glorified when he comes to our rescue. He is glorified when we are satisfied in him alone. There's nothing in the universe that is greater than God. 
so if God were to put people or things chiefly above himself, then he would be an idolater. But as it is, God is the greatest being ever in the universe. So it's not arrogant or not, it's not boastful for him to say, look at me. Look at what I am doing in this world. Look at how I am helping these people over here. I am the God who saves. And it's not humiliating and it's not degrading for us to forget ourselves and to gaze upon the one in whom we were created for. Friends, when we screw up, we have and, and we're going to do it again. There is nothing greater than I can counsel you with than to return to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Samuel puts it this way in verse 24. Above all, fear the Lord. And worship him faithfully with all of your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. You know, I've untied a lot of knots in my life, and I, I, I am fairly certain that there's going to be quite a few more. And though there are some that are not going anywhere, I know that I can recall God's faithfulness in my life. I can look back and see the many times, even before I knew him, that he was faithful to me. And I know that when I recall his faithfulness, when I admit and turn to him in, in, in faith from my sin, that I can go through life maybe with a, a shorter string, but one that's tighter. And he will do the same for you.